An argument breaks out in response to a perceived slight. Anger erupts and violence ensues. It is all too familiar cases like this that make it unsurprising that many philosophers have been troubled by anger. Seneca famously saw anger as a passion that we should both resist and restrain. Kant saw anger as a violent affect that we should seek to avoid as it overpowers a reasoned and rational response to slights and insults. However, many philosophers, inspired by P. F. Strauss's 1962 essay on freedom and resentment, have taken interpersonal reactive attitudes, such as anger and resentment, to be the defining features of our moral responsibility practices. But what is moral responsibility, and what does emotions, such as anger, have to do with it? I'm your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa, and welcome to In the Cave, an Ethics Podcast. Here to help us think about these issues today is Professor Michael McKenna. Michael is a Professor of Philosophy at the University of Arizona, and he's the 2022 Distinguished Visitor of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE. Michael, welcome to In the Cave. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. Thank you. Look, you've published lots of really interesting articles and books on issues around moral responsibility, reactive attitudes, and free will. So a good place to start today would be if you could tell us a little bit about what moral responsibility is, and also maybe how we might know if somebody has it. Here's a way to think about what moral responsibility is. It's first to back up and think about the nature of morality, and also, I should say, the nature of the ethical life. So the study of morality is the study of what's morally right and wrong, what's good and bad, as well as evaluations of character good and bad character, which some people characterize in terms of virtue and vice. Now, the study of moral responsibility is not just this, is not concerned just with what's morally right and wrong. It's concerned with responsibility or accountability for what we do when we do something that's morally right or morally wrong, when we violate obligations or we comply with obligations or we act in ways that go beyond what we're obligated to do. Okay. Now, a further question is what the scope of morality is. And you might also think that there are further considerations about our ethical lives that don't have to do just with what our moral obligations are, what we're even required or what we're permitted to do. They involve valuations of other features of our character or worth. So in a way, the topic of moral responsibility is almost mislabeled because we can raise questions about responsibility for aspects of our ethical life that aren't just restricted to questions of obligation. However, most people who work on moral responsibility, like myself, tend to focus on a kind of moral responsibility that people characterize in terms of accountability. And accountability concerns holding each other to account for what we do. And it's commonly thought, though I disagree with this, but it's close enough, it's commonly thought that in the accountability sense, we hold people morally responsible only within the more restricted domain of morality that concerns what our moral obligations are. I don't think that's quite right, but most people think in those terms, and that's good enough for our purposes. Okay, so it's about holding others to account in the domain of morality. Now, that's fine, as you say, as a general view, but let's maybe get a little bit more specific. Uh, In particular, you're known for what's called the conversational theory of moral responsibility. So maybe you could tell us briefly what that theory is and really how it helps us to understand moral responsibility better. Sure. So, look, here's a model that I and others do not endorse, (laughs) though... Another, so to speak, group of philosophers, intrapersonal theorists do. Those are theories of responsibility that some people call these ledger views, where if you think about the nature of what moral responsibility is, you're supposed to be able to characterize what it is to be morally responsible in ways that don't require any essential reference to holding morally responsible. On views of that sort, you might think that then the standards for when we hold people morally responsible 
and hold them to account. Characteristically, when we're worried about cases of negative behavior, when somebody's done wrong, you know, hold them to account by some sanctioning or some blaming behavior or something like that. And on these views, on these intrapersonal views, these, so to speak, ledger views, what it is to hold somebody morally responsible is settled after the fact having already previously settled the facts about what it is to be morally responsible. And those moral responsibility facts are not in any way dependent on the holding responsible facts. The reason people characterize this often as a ledger view is it's a view according to which there are just these facts about whether somebody is responsible, and they can be understood as roughly as if there were a ledger of the truth of the matter. And then there are other people who could, so to speak, look at the ledger and then make some decisions about how to respond to such a person. Interpersonal theories of responsibility instead are theories that contend in one way or another that there's an important interdependence relationship between the practices and the expectations of holding responsible and the nature of being responsible. And a natural and understandable way to see that this is to think in terms of the demands and the expectations that we have as a community of individuals when we hold people to account. That ends up being reason-providing and structuring the considerations that responsible agents take into account when they act in ways in which they either are or aren't responsible. And so in this way, there's a kind of interdependence relationship, and it's a sort of dynamic relationship, so that the individual who is responsible is alive to their expectations and the concerns of members of a moral community who are prepared to hold them to count if they don't act well or if they act in especially laudatory ways they're likely to respond by in approving ways that helps structure the agency of the person who is responsible now so these kind of, these kinds of interpersonal theories can be understood in various ways one way to understand them is to see the the practices of holding responsible especially blaming but also praising and then and for different kinds of cases, punishing, to see those practices on, uh, on the model of a, kind of, of, of a kind of communication. So what we're doing when we're holding responsible is we're communicating to those who are, who are responsible demands, expectations, signals of altered behavior, perhaps as a kind of sanctioning, that kind of thing, or as a kind of rewarding so I endorse some version of a communication-based view, but what I think is especially important is not just that the view is a communication-based view, but that it's conversational. So on my view, to understand our moral responsibility practices, we, we should think about modeling our relationship with each other on analogy with the same kind of relationship that we have between interlocutors when competent conversational speakers speak with each other. So the difference so then from when I communicate with you rather than when I converse with you is that the sort of norms and the standards for me merely communicating with you only require that I make use of meaningful resources to convey what I think. But when I'm conversing with you, there's extra sort of normative expectations about my relationship with you. I alter what I say in relationship to you as an interlocutor because I'm alive to the possibility that you have expectations about what I mean, and I also am alive to the possibility that I'm in a way conversationally accountable to respond back to you. So on this kind of conversational theory of the sort that I endorse, we can see our agency as expressing a kind of meaning that I say is analogous to in philosophy of language, what philosophers call speaker meaning. Speaker meaning is distinct from sentence meaning in that sentences just have a meaning, a type of meaning for whatever the character of the sentences is. But speakers can use sentences 
to convey specific thoughts that might even diverge from the, the meaning of the sentences. Likewise, I say, somebody who's a morally responsible agent, their actions take on the character of things for which they can be morally responsible insofar as their actions can take on something that I characterize in terms of agent meaning where that agent meaning is indicative of or expressive of their regard for others and their regard for relevant salient moral considerations. And in doing so, they're alive to others in a moral community whom they expect will interpret their behavior as either displaying what the philosopher P.F. Strassen called good or ill will. So I say holding responsible as being alive to the, so to speak, agent meaning, the meaning of an agent's actions, where the meaning of an agent's actions is a function of the moral quality of her will. And then responses to that are responses to, to the quality of an agent's will, and that's what it is to hold responsible. That's roughly the way I developed the conversational theory. Yeah. So on the interpersonal view uh, that you've been describing, it's our practices of holding responsible uh, that correlate with people being responsible. Those two things go together. Whereas on the ledger view, obviously, they, can, they come apart. And it's these interpersonal views in many ways that have been inspired by Strawson's earlier work on, on freedom and resentment. So maybe we can turn to that, uh, which you mentioned at the end of your answer there, and think a little bit about what Strawson calls reactive attitudes and how our practices of holding others responsible involve the reactive attitudes. So maybe you could tell us what, what are the reactive attitudes, what are they, and how do they relate to our moral responsibility practices? Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So I'm going to walk into this slowly just to start. So what, what let me say before I even give you a direct answer to the question of what the reactive attitudes are. Let me just say, many philosophers who focus on Strassen's work, they take it that the most important thing in Strassen's essay is this focus on the reactive attitudes. And I share the assumption that they're quite important, but I think the key to understanding them, and also the key to Strassen's work, is that what they're most fundamentally to be understood in terms of is responses to what I was characterizing earlier in terms of quality of will. So, you might think then about these reactive attitudes as attitudes that are responses to something else. What are they responses to? What are they reactions to? Our quality of will. Now, Strawson thought about those reactive attitudes in terms of their having an emotional character. So in, in particular, in the subject of our discussion for today is anger, moralized anger. Though Strawson never used the word anger, he used uh, more refined terms of resentment and indignation. And I might have a little more to say about just that in a minute, but let's just go with the idea that resentment and indignation can roughly be understood as flavors of something like anger. This kind of anger, this kind of reactive anger, is meant to be a response to recognizing features that are grounds for eliciting or in some way making anger a fitting response to a recognition that, say, somebody's been wronged or there's some offense done, some slight of some sort. Now, Strawson, well, Strawson is understood to have held the thesis that these reactive attitudes are essential to our moral responsibility practices. And if you plug that into my conversational theory, what's then essential is that the reactive attitudes are the vehicles whereby we hold responsible in these sort of conversational exchanges when responding to what I've called the agent meaning of somebody's actions. But I'm not actually sure that Strawson was really committed to that essentialist thesis. The reason that people think that he was is there's this passage where he says something like, only by attending to this range of attitudes can we capture what we mean of all we mean by, and you know, he includes justice and other things, but he mentions responsibility. I don't know how much that really means he was fully committed to the essentialist thesis, but the reason I think some people think that this essentialist thesis is at the heart of 
these theories of responsibility is because we are beings who are emotionally structured beings. We, are, we do have the proclivities of having these kinds of emotional responses. In the case when somebody treats us poorly and we think that the behavior is blameworthy, we think they show poor quality of will, in those cases, the characteristic response is some kind of anger response. In the case of our own culpability, it's a response of guilt. And I don't think we should think of guilt as a kind of anger, but we'll set that aside for now. Now, despite the fact that that's the way that people think of Strawson's view, I'm not sure that Strawson was committed to it, but regardless of whether or not Strawson was, I'm not committed to it, and I don't think it's reasonable. I think about the relationship between these morally reactive attitudes, these emotional responses that are reactions to perceived attitudes of others, is that they're contingently related to these practices. So the way I think about it is is that these emotional responses are natural vehicles that have grown up because of our nature and that are resources that we deploy and hold each other to account. And then a whole set of social conventions have been structured around the fact that this is the way we are, this is our nature, and it's our natural way to hold people to account. But I also think that it's possible to decouple these. Now, it might not be practically or psychologically realistic or possible to do it in all cases, but I still think that there's a lot more flexibility between the resources that we have to hold people responsible in the negative case and respond to them well and praise them in the positive case without these moral emotions. It's just that for the neurotypical critters like most of us, it's just the natural way we're inclined to do things. So I guess probing on that point just a little bit more. So... Someone displays ill will towards us, we react with anger or something like that. Now, you, you don't want to endorse the essentialist view, so you don't think this is necessarily the case. We can imagine another sort of species of being for whom anger is not a necessary sort of feature of holding responsible. But you do think for creatures like us, it is at least for most of us a kind of natural response. So I guess one way to, to sort of come at that question a little bit more is by asking, can we be angry at others without holding them morally responsible? And can we hold them morally responsible without being angry at them? Yeah. For creatures like us. Okay, so um, that is exactly the right question to ask. So look, here I think is an easy way to see that surely it's true that we can be angry with people and, you're not, and yet not blame them. Actually, I'm going to hit the pause button on that and just clarify one little thing that would make it too easy to prove that point. And that is is that we really do need to distinguish between different kinds of anger. There's goal frustration anger, like when my damn car won't start in the morning and I'm late for work or something of that sort. So there's there's a kind of emotional response that is is not in any way about our our interpersonal relationships with others and our sense that others don't show appropriate concern or regard for us or others. Strawson was worried about that. And now if I could just circle back earlier to my little remark that maybe I'd have something more to say about resentment and indignation as distinct from anger, I think that Strawson was reserving those terms that for us now might be regarded as quaint and less familiar resentment and indignation, to characterize forms of moralized anger that are especially sensitive or tailored to our regards and our expectations and our relationships with each other. Okay. Now, to get to the, the question cast more carefully, can we be angry with people without holding them responsible? I think this happens all the time. It happens when we have inappropriate anger that we register as inappropriate. I'm one-upped at a philosophy conference and, you know, a good friend asks a good challenging question. 
and it elicits a feeling of anger because I feel like, you know, I got caught off guard or something and I wasn't at my best. But, you know, my better self recognizes that my anger's out of line. I have no basis to hold my good friend responsible for a perfectly reasonable... We, we have many cases of unbent, unbidden anger that we wouldn't endorse and we don't act upon. And in those cases, we don't engage in the relevant kind of practices of holding people to account by expressing our anger and modulating it in such a way as to use it as a resource to hold people to account. So I think it's pretty easy to see that there's lots of, and if you think about it, guilt as a form of self-blame, it's very clear that there's lots of cases of recalcitrant guilt or unbidden guilt that uh, clearly, even by the standards of the person who's experiencing it, aren't really seen as holding oneself to account. Uh, the familiar example of the you know young person who was raised in a Catholic environment and been told since a very young age that homosexual sex is uh, deeply immoral might have you know acquired and sufficiently conditioned him or herself in such a way that they feel guilt after some kind of sexual encounter but they might not hold them respons- themselves responsible they not believe that they're responsible they might engage in all kinds of activity to rid themselves of the feeling rather than endorse it and alter their behavior so there's that but now let's also consider can we hold people responsible when they're blameworthy for something they've done a wrong and do so with resources that don't have to need of deploying anger at all i think that also happens all the time there's all kinds of circumstances where we might just have a cool that is not um, um, we might just have a flattened response to somebody and yet think that it's appropriate to hold them responsible and take actions characteristic of expressing that we are blaming them and we're holding them to account. Maybe by mild sorts of social sanctioning or just pointing out that they've done wrong and indicating that we think it's reasonable that they do better. So just one little example and then I'll I'll wrap up just this point. A really nice example is from Jay Wallace in a a lovely book from 1994, Responsibility and the Moral Sentiments. And he gives the example of a charming colleague who's done some mildly wrong thing, and you see that it would be appropriate in blaming him to express some anger, but he's just so charming and he's such a close friend, you just can't bring up well up the sense of anger that normally accompanies a blaming practice, but you can still hold the guy to account for the poor behavior. Excellent. So let's follow on that a little bit more, really. So in many ways, the response is to say something like... um, well, sometimes we have anger and it's not apt or appropriate to have that anger. Uh, or sometimes it'd be apt and appropriate to have the anger, but you can't sort of well it up. Let's sort of focus on this idea that anger is apt or appropriate and sort of see uh, how, insofar as that's connected to moral responsibility. So more generally, there are worries with anger, even when it's, uh, we want to say appropriate anger, is that you know, it, can be, it can be seen as kind of uh, too, too overpowering, too strong. It interferes with rational agency. This is kind of Kant's worry. It can lead us astray. Okay, you can talk about whether it's appropriate or not. Um, some people sort of point out that it could be bad for our well-being. It could be it could be bad for us to harbour anger, even if it is appropriate and apt. Um, and of course, given it, its power, it can also lead to, obviously to violence and confrontation and things like that. So uh, you know, other philosophers such as Gary Watson seem to sort of argue by giving examples like Gandhi and Martin Luther King that uh, we can not only rid ourselves of anger, but it somehow would be appropriate to rid ourselves of anger. That um, that and and how that comes back to moral responsibility is that they. We could take this as a sort of argument that uh, we could hold others responsible and also not take anger to be an appropriate response. Not only not express it on, but not even have it and, and sort of seek towards not having it. So I was just wondering, like, how then do you sort of respond to that? Can, can we still hold others responsible and not even think anger is appropriate in those cases? 
So thank you. Also, perfect question and, and right on the money. I actually think we can hold people responsible and not think anger is appropriate. In fact, there are various philosophers who have been arguing for some kind of abolitionism or some kind of qualified stance of sort of curbing or curtailing the role of these negative moral emotions in our lives and do so in a way that allows us to persist in holding people responsible and engaging with others in a moral community. So, for, for instance, this is the view of the philosopher Dirk Paraboom and Greg Caruso is another philosopher who endorses a similar view. I think that that's a viable option. Now, Strawson worried that it's psychologically unrealistic to expect that sort of wholesale we can really expunge these moral emotions from our lives. But I think Strawson was actually not sufficiently generous with those kinds of abolitionists or skeptics who thought that we could still radically modify our interpersonal lives in a way to cut down on the role of anger in our moral responsibility practices. So that I think it's possible. And look, anger comes with... Uh, anger involves includes various kinds of moral hazards, and some of them can be extreme. And the, the example of the case that you started with is an illustrative case is worth keeping in mind. Nevertheless, I also think that people like Martha Nussbaum and a philosopher named um, Bruce Waller and others who have written rather forcefully against the role of moralized anger in our lives, I also think that in many cases... They're too focused on misapplications or unvirtuous expressions of anger. I, I think that anger appropriately expressed and structured by other dispositions or other moral inclinations like for compassion or justice or a sense of well-being of all fellow members of a moral community is a resource that we can make use of so that we can express our moralized anger in a way that's, that's fitting or fair, deserved or just, and in that way avoid lots of the moral hazards that come with forms of anger that can be morally unjustified, undignified, risky, excessive, that sort of thing. I'll also say one other thing that bears mentioning, is that there are also costs that need to be registered for those who are advocating for some kind of abolitionism about the role of moral anger in our lives. And those costs are that there are, so to speak, important goods that might come with preserving the role of anger in our lives. So for instance, Amiya Srinivasa has a nice paper on the aptness of anger. And part of the point of her paper is that in certain kinds of extreme cases of like major political wrongs and harms, the role of righteous anger is an important uh, moral tool for appropriately responding to grievous kinds of massive political and social wrongs. That's a, that's a role for anger. And similarly, Maisha Sherry, in a, a, a book called The Case for Rage, argues for similar points, and so does McAllister Bell, not about um, anger, but a related moral reactive attitude of contempt, book titled Hard Feelings. So you might think that there are also important benefits to responding to people with anger, where that anger gets expressed in a way that plays an important social role in important kinds of moral improvements. One more thing, which and this is actually at the heart of the book I'm working on completing now called Responsibility and Dessert. There's another thing, too, that anger might be useful for, and it might be an important delivery system for giving people what they deserve. So if you think 
that some people who have done wrong deserve to have a response that they find unwelcome or, or in some way harmful. You might think about anger as a way to hold people to account by eliciting in them a, a response whereby it's seen as something that is of a deserved cost that they're to pay, a minor cost. And I think that that is not an unreasonable way to think about seeing our moralized anger as something that might be deserved. Now, I, only, I think that it's only reasonable to think about an angry response as a thing that's deserved insofar as a person who received that response would find it unwelcome or harmful. If it's very carefully tailored to be a suitable or fitting response that's not cruel or vengeful, that's not excessive, it's reasonable if I'm uncaring and insult my friend's wife and he becomes angry with me and I feel a little badly, then my feeling a little badly is a response to be, his being angry with me is my responding to eliciting what might be a deserved anger and that little bit of psychic pain might be suited for that response. And if we think about our moral emotions as a kind of social glue that's a kind of delivery system for holding each other to account in these ways as a way of supplying people with what they deserve, then anger can also have this further benefit other than this benefit of improving social change, which is that it's a way of, of providing people what they deserve when they're blameworthy for the things that they do. And expressing it through interpersonal interaction. Exactly. And it was just forgive me, but just to, to just say one more thing about that. One of the things that's the part of my, the thesis of my book is that I want to say that even the, the very particular thing that's deserved just is receiving it as the thing that's expressed and receiving it as something that is in a certain way unwelcome but registered as fitting and just. One quick follow-up, I suppose, on that is, so we can accept that against the abolitionists, that there's some subset of cases where anger is clearly appropriate. Then the other extreme, I suppose, is the case where we think anger, for all cases of ill will being expressed, anger is always the appropriate fitting response. And then I suppose, yeah, there's this kind of middle ground. We think sometimes it's appropriate and fitting to express anger in response to ill will, and sometimes it's not. There's some other, some other response that would be appropriate. It seems like you're sort of pushing towards the, the view where, in all cases, anger is going to be an appropriate or part of the appropriate response to some sort of ill will. I guess why I think that view might be better than sort of an in-between view where we say sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's something else. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I don't know where I want to put this. In a qualified way, I do want to say that anger, um, on a certain theory of moral responsibility, I do want to say anger is always appropriate. However, this gets a little bit into the sort of weeds in terms of uh, the reasons that are supplied when anger is appropriate. But I think about the reasons that are supplied when anger is appropriate as pro tanto reasons, that is, defeasible reasons that can be defeated by other considerations that could outweigh the appropriateness considerations. If, in particular, you think appropriateness itself, when anger is appropriate, it's appropriate because it's deserved. You might think there's lots of cases in where uh, it could be true that it's deserved that somebody receive a certain kind of response that might be expressed through anger. But it could be that there's other extremely important moral considerations that just wash over considerations of desert. So maybe it would just be, in that context, too painful for a person to receive what she deserves in terms of an angry response because she's going through a hard time and it's just unjustified to show that anger towards her. You might think that more generally... Anger is a sufficiently toxic feature of our interpersonal lives that for general reasons of policy, even though 
maybe everybody who's blameworthy deserves some kind of angry response. Despite the fact that they might deserve it, there might be greater social goods that justify forgetting about supplying people with what they deserve because overall anger is toxic enough that it's just best to adopt a general policy of seeking other means of responding to people and holding them to account that don't have anything to do with using anger to supply people with what they deserve. I think that's an open question. And I mean, as much as I'm an advocate for a a dessert-based view like this and seeing a tempered and modulated form of Uh, virtuous expressions of anger as uh, at the heart of one way of thinking about a theory of moral responsibility, I'm actually open to the thought that there could be alternative resources for justifying our responsibility practices don't have anything to do with anger. I mean, in all honesty, my only reason for focusing on a dessert-based justification for anger is because in a related area that I work on, topic of free will, Many philosophers who write on the topic of free will think that the presupposition of desert is unique as a justification in our moral responsibility practices for presuming that a person could only deserve a certain kind of response if they possessed a strong or robust kind of control over their, their behavior, which philosophers like myself identify with free will. So I'm, in a way, I'm most interested in the dessert justifications for moral responsibility because those ones seem to be the ones that invoke a strong sense of a freedom condition in terms of free will as a constraint on moral responsibility. Maybe nobody has free will. Maybe free will some kind of free will skepticism is true. And if that's true, on a view like mine, nobody deserves to be the recipient of any kind of a response because they're blameworthy for what they do, especially if the response is harmful or painful. But that wouldn't mean that there wouldn't be other justifications for holding people to account by other resources that don't dispense with giving people things that allegedly they deserve because they might not deserve any of such responses. Well, Michael, that is amazing. That's such an interesting conversation and I really appreciate your time today. Look, our lives are full of perceived slights, wrongs and injustices directed at us and those we care about. Some are big and some are small. And the role of anger as part of our emotional response to such actions is something that we all have to walk through at different times in our lives. Whether that anger is appropriate, how it's constrained, and whether we should seek to eliminate it from our practices of holding others to account are thus questions of interpersonal significance for all of us. But that is all we have time for today. We will have some links to Michael's publications in the show notes. Thank you very much for your time. And this podcast has been a presentation of the Macquarie University Research Centre for Agency, Values and Ethics, or CAVE. And I've been your host, Associate Professor Paul Formosa. Thank you.